0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Julie Sunderland. She is a managing director at Biomatics Capital, a Seattle-based venture firm that invests in what it calls data-enabled healthcare. Before diving into that, as always, I want listeners to get to know the person making things happen and how she got here. Sunderland and her fellow investing partner, Boris Nikolic, worked together at the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation before starting this firm in 2016. Sunderland, with a finance background and a deep understanding of science-based business, was the architect of the Gates Foundation's program-related investments, structure, and strategy. Nikolic, a scientist by training, was the personal science advisor for Bill Gates, and he handled some of Bill's investments in biology plays like Foundation Medicine, Editas Medicine, Nimbus Therapeutics, and Schrodinger, which were all extracurriculars, you could say, that ventured beyond the global health philanthropic mission of the foundation. Biomatics raised an initial fund of $200 million in 2016 and put it to work in an eclectic batch of therapeutics, diagnostic, and digital health or tool plays. The portfolio includes Denali Therapeutics, Grail, Twist Bioscience, and Verona Health, among others. Last week, Biomatics announced it had closed on a second fund, this one with $300 million to keep doing what it does. Sunderland, you will hear, is a very down-to-earth person. She's raw and real. She grew up in a home in Nova Scotia, I learned, that lacked electricity until she was 12. Now she interacts with some of the smartest entrepreneurs and investors in the world of biotech on a daily basis. It's quite a life journey. Okay, now before we dive in, a few plugs. Life science cares is an exciting new philanthropic outlet for biotech professionals. It's a collective effort of the life science industry to end poverty in the greater Boston area. Now working with more than 150 companies, Life Science Cares harnesses the industry's human and financial resources to support service organizations doing the very best work in the areas of basic human survival, education, and economic sustainability. To learn more about how your organization can become a member or how you can volunteer, visit www.lifesciencecares.org. And are you planning a conference, a team-building event, or leadership retreat? I've developed a presentation based on my successful Mount Everest summit expedition. My Everest talks feature gorgeous photos from the world's highest mountain, along with lessons on leadership, teamwork, and what it takes to overcome adversity to achieve the big goals. This is relevant stuff for biotech. Ask me about an Everest talk at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. Lastly, do you want to see the long-run podcast continue? This show has a growing and very highly engaged audience, but it has been without a sponsor since June. It costs me money to produce every episode, and I won't keep doing it forever without a sponsorship. If you like this show and want to consistently get your company's brand out there in front of this audience of real movers and shakers in the innovative side of biotech, then let's talk. Luke.timberman at ProtonMail.com Okay, end of sales pitch. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Julie Sunderland on the long run. I'm here in Seattle at the offices of Biomatics Capital with partner Julie Sunderland. Just recently raised a new $300 million fund to invest in biology and technology. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run,
1: Julie. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, Julie, we we were just talking before starting the show. When we first, I think, corresponded would have been when you made your initial announcement of your first fund. This was uh, uh, spring of 2017. You and your partner Boris Nikolic, is that am I saying that correctly? Nikolic, Nikolic. yeah, okay. You got you had both worked together at the Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. I think we'll, we'll get to like the genesis of this fund sure. later, but it came together around this shared interest, complementary skills in yep. finance, finance and science, mm-hmm. sensing. Let's call it similar kind of opportunities in biology and technology to say an Arch Venture Partners or a GV. Mm-hmm. These are your friends you yep. syndicate with. These are our friends. <laughs> so you, you've got a lot of interesting things going on, interesting portfolio here with Denali Therapeutics, Verana Health, Grail. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of diversity in there of uh, business models and technology. So, lots to talk about there. But as you know, as a listener of the show, yep. I like to start about uh, learning a little bit about the person. Okay. Who are you in a longitudinal sense that sure. got you to this interesting point? Yeah. So we'll start this from the very top. Where were you born and raised?
1: I was born in Nova Scotia, so I'm Canadian. My mother's actually American, so I'm half Canadian, half American. And I grew up actually on a... Small farm in Nova Scotia. Right now I am the interim CEO of eGenesis, as you know, which is a company that's trying to actually engineer pigs. And we're doing a lot of discussion, uh, pigs for human organs, and we're doing a lot of discussions around pig farming because we need to actually go out and produce pigs. And I tell the team that, you know, I, I started my... My early life, living on a farm, raising pigs, and I got out as soon as I possibly can, and now I'm now I'm back to pig farming again. Which wow. I think is oh, kind of funny.
0: Okay, um, Julie, I did not know this at all. You are the first person that I think I've met in biotech yes. who has this in common with me. Oh, you were a pig farmer. I was a pig <laughs> farmer. I grew up in southwestern Wisconsin. Really? I did chores yep. every day after I'm milking school. cows. Feed the pigs. Water them. Yep. Shovel the shit. Yep. All of that stuff. No Didn't excuses. No whining. Don't if it's 20 below zero outside, absolutely. you still got to do it anyway. Absolutely. That's our livelihood. Absolutely. And I, I was actually thinking about this recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife reminded me that that cultivated a, a grit or determination early <laughs> on that maybe I didn't appreciate then, but I do now. Yep. And it's the kind of thing that helped me get up Mount Everest, yep. frankly. And, and, absolutely. and it is the kind of thing that you take with you, I'm
1: sure, mm-hmm.
0: each day, whether you do you think about it or not? Yeah.
1: I, I joke with my, my teams because people who know me know that I tend to be relatively opinionated and aggressive in the way that I communicate with people. Uh, and I blame it on the fact that I used to have to milk cows. So I was, you know, an eight-year-old, you know, weighed maybe 75 pounds, bossing around these very large animals which meant that I learned how to be very, very forceful at a very early age. And I blame that. I blame my bossiness on that particular experience. Well, I wouldn't blame it. I, I would consider it a, a feature. <laughs> it's an a, asset. It has, has been an asset a, in my life. It's a feature, not a bug.
0: It may not have seemed like a blessing at the time. No,
1: it was, it was a good experience. It was <laughs> good.
0: Okay. So your dad's Canadian, your mom's American. You're literally growing up in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. I mean, way far
1: away. In the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yep, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So what kind of student were you?
1: school oh I was a very passionate student I read a huge amount um, my we didn't have believe it or not I'll tell you the story I don't know that many people know that about we grew up without electricity until I was probably 12 so I spent a huge amount of time reading and reading and learning and school were such a great way for me to channel my curiosity and my interest living in a not in a relatively you know harsh living environment. My family, you know, I had a big family and it was a very warm family, but it was not an easy um, early childhood to grow up in. And and I found my joy in learning and reading. Uh Uh-huh. How many siblings did you have? Five. There are five of us. So four siblings.
0: And where are you in the birth order? I'm middle. Okay. Okay. Did that. So you're an avid reader. What about as you go through high school, what were some of your favorite subjects?
1: Definitely science, definitely history. Um, One of the things that I think that I've always been oriented toward is solving, thinking about how to solve problems in the world and thinking about being a Canadian, I think a sense, a very clear sense of justice and the need for equal opportunity for people. So I spent a lot of time, you know, I loved science. I also really loved history and loved political science and thinking about the state of the world and the systems within the world.
0: Okay, so you uh, you must have done pretty well. You get into Harvard for mm-hmm. undergraduate, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And what did you major in there? Uh,
1: I actually did history and science, which was a fantastic major because what it allowed me to do was to go deep on science but also think about the history of science and the evolution of Western thought through the lens of the evolution of science, which was just a powerful, powerful education.
0: But you're also probably wondering... No okay, what am I going to do with that mm-hmm. uh, come graduation? Yeah. So what, what was your next couple of steps after that?
1: Yeah, so I had a pretty formative experience in that I went and did um, my senior thesis in South Africa just as Mandela was elected. So I spent uh, probably four months in South Africa, and it was an extraordinary time. And I was oriented towards, oh, I think I might go be a doctor and take care of people in you know, refugee camps around the world And I spent that summer, I hung out with sort of freedom fighters and people that were trying to solve problems within their own country. And what that did for me is say, I should go back and learn real skills. And so I ended up after that going into consulting. My first experience was actually in Boston working for L.E.K., so doing a huge number of biotech due diligence uh for you know companies like this is early biotech too okay
0: so you're talking uh early south africa and Mandela's present early 90s yep, yep, okay yep. okay so yes biotech is just mm-hmm, beginning mm-hmm. really yeah
1: so i cut my teeth professionally with at lek thinking about you know opportunities within biotech doing a huge number of due diligence for Um, Venture firms and strategy projects a lot for small biotechs. We did a lot. I remember still, you know, a huge number of projects for Genzyme. So that was my that was my earliest professional experience and learned a huge amount doing that.
0: So, did you really catch the bug there and say, you know, this this is what I want to do long term?
1: So actually, Luke, I've always been again. I've got my the bug that I've that's consistent throughout my life is thinking about how to solve problems for humanity, and I was really interested in doing that internationally. And so I ended up shifting towards looking at private equity internationally. And I went and spent probably a decade working in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and Eastern Europe, trying to understand how do you solve problems in the context. And my belief system was always entrepreneurs and innovators, a little bit driven by that science orientation are the ones that are going to solve problems in these markets and had some just fabulous experiences working with entrepreneurs in these markets who are trying to figure out how to solve really basic problems. So, you know, generic drug manufacturing in Ghana or, you know, I was running around Africa pre-cell phones and I remember being in uh, Nigeria when there were maybe 200,000 landlines And the World Bank was talking about, okay, how do we build out, you know, spend billions and billions to build out this old landline infrastructure? And cell phones were just emerging. And people can figure out, yeah, should we finance this? Is this crazy? And five years later, you go back to Nigeria, and they've all got three cell phones because, you know, it's a little bit spotty infrastructure. And they're transacting their businesses, they're selling their goods, they're communicating with their friends. And the other interesting thing was the degree to which, you know, it was a, it's, a, it's a technology, but it got adapted into the context. So even, even though, you know, there are a lot of poor people, they could, built out distribution mechanisms such that the poor people could also afford cell phones. And that was such a powerful lesson to me because what it demonstrated was the leapfrog Of technology and how technology could solve problems, and you know, I I, at a certain point thought I should, and I'd done some work and projects for the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation. And my my thesis, at some point, I'll go back and prove this, is that cell phones had more of an impact than two decades of World Bank infrastructure funding because it was a leapfrog technology that solved a huge problem for people. So that's that's like that's a foundational perspective. And so then if you go into the health systems, and if you look at these health systems, and you look at, at the challenges of these health systems, the only way that we solve those problems is through leapfrog technology and innovating at very high levels. And that's that, that's the bug that has driven most of what
0: I've done. Well, LEAPFROG being this idea that other countries don't need to necessarily need to develop in the same so-called linear fashion <laughs> that we did here in the US. <laughs> you can skip a couple generations of technology if, if it's cheap and available enough. and Okay, so you're in your 20s, it sounds like. I mean, this is a pretty adventurous experience. Yep. You're traveling around the world, yep. t- tackling all these uh, hard problems, mm-hmm. probably interacting with lots of powerful people and different walks of life, mm-hmm. learning a lot. You decided to go back and get a couple extra degrees. I mean, mm-hmm. was that important or just sort of like a way station?
1: You know, to be honest, the I'd probably say something. And so my MBA, from I got an MBA from Wharton, I'm really glad I had an MBA from Orton, more because it credentialed me. And as a woman running around the world trying to have credibility, and I'm a pretty forceful personality, so I create my own credibility, but having that credential was super helpful. So I went I went really to get that credential, and then it's been a real powerful credential for me throughout my career. So you end up in
0: private equity. A lot of people hear that term, and they don't necessarily think that that's an instrument for positive change hmm. it has a, a connotation to it what did you see there where you said yeah I can I can make uh, an
1: impact here so when I started working in emerging market private equity it was late 90s and it didn't ex- it basically didn't exist it was a few funds and again if you look at now are we talking venture capital or so the, the, the that's, other what say- leveraged that's what I'm saying you're, 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 lo- you're looking at you're looking at Private equity and the term private equity through the lens of...
0: Let's buy a big company, fire a bunch of people, make things more efficient. (laughs) When you're in Eastern
1: Europe, these are ice cream manufacturers and medical commodity distributors and generic drug manufacturers and... Hospitals and these are core businesses that are the infrastructure on which a society is is built. And if you look at the alternatives, a lot of these countries were were systems that, you know, that didn't promote this entrepreneurial innovation. And so, to come in and work with some of these entrepreneurs and the, you know, and we, and we take it we take in the the infrastructure we have here for granted. If you go into Africa and you try to build a cell phone company, it is so, you know, there's so many obstacles to overcome. So I would, it looked a lot more like venture, but not in the venture that we, that we assume here. It's really, it's really building, it's building companies, it's building and it's taking sort of existing technology, but adapting it to the system in which, you know, the the, the infrastructure and the country in which they operate. So I have a huge, I have a, I have so much admiration for entrepreneurs in these types of markets because they are building, you know, businesses that are fundamentally innovative on the the business model perspective. They're adapting technology to these markets in in very difficult settings. So it was a great experience to work with entrepreneurs in these markets.
0: So I imagine that was a pretty good set of experiences for the Gates Foundation. Yes, yes. how, How did that opportunity come
1: about? Yeah. I was living in uh, Ghana with my husband, uh, working on an investment uh, fund there, working across Africa at the time. I really wanted to live in these markets because I really wanted to understand how how they functioned. And I actually got pregnant with my first kid. And what I realized is that I was a coward because I have all these friends who are, their kids are born and they're raised within these health systems. And I was totally fine with it. I was very accepting of the romanticism of potentially dying of malaria in one of these countries. But when it came to my kids, I was not going to do that. Uh, and so I d- I decided to move back to the U.S. at that point. This and is when you were pregnant? Yes.
0: Okay, so you start looking.
1: I start looking. Uh, and I had a number of colleagues that were uh, working within the Gates Foundation. It was, it was a pretty new organization at that time. I think there were probably... 300 people when I joined, um, and they said, "Hey, listen, we're we're looking at um, potentially figuring out." It it was I actually joined the foundation just as Bill was shifting from focusing in on what his work at Microsoft to focusing in on the foundation. And when he came in, he looked and he said, "Why aren't we doing more with the private sector?" Alex Friedman, who was the CFO of the t- at the time, uh, hired me. Uh, and Alex had a conversation with Bill, Why don't we invest in companies? Why don't we actually partner very closely with these companies? They're the engine of innovation. They're the you know the organizations that are going to solve problems, which is very consistent with sort of my philosophy. Uh, and so Alex brought me in to to set up that to see whether we could do it, which was which was a lot of fun. And I took a lot of the experience that I had in these these markets of, um trying to balance risk reward, trying to think about how do we support great companies and great entrepreneurs to solve some of the problems that the that the foundation was was thinking about solving. December of two thousand and
0: eight. Okay, okay. so uh, you know, Gates Foundation at this time, it's it's the world' largest philanthropy. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. already got well articulated strategy on global health, education, but it primarily gave grants mm-hmm. like, most foundations in the world. Yep. they find uh, If you're an interesting academic somewhere with a bright idea, you can apply for grants. They also had this Grand Challenges program, which I don't know if that was existing mm-hmm. before you got here. So people who really got far out ideas yep. that, that aren't quite ready for the more conservative federal review, grant review system. Yep. Um, that's one place where philanthropy can play mm-hmm. and, and make an impact. But you're saying that, you know, Bill, with his private sector experience, is looking at this and saying, maybe there's a way to have even bigger impact or more influence, maybe, by investing directly in for-profit biotech companies. That's right. But that's, uh, that's a little tricky, mm-hmm. right? As a, a foundation, mm-hmm. a, a nonprofit, yep. that's, it's not your mission to make money mm-hmm. at, at the Gates Foundation. So how did you think about balancing the various interests at play?
1: When we went out and figured out how to do this, and we weren't sure we could, we weren't sure that within the constraints of a foundation that we could figure out a way to do it efficiently. We weren't sure whether there'd be interest from the biotech community in in partnering with us in this way, and so we spent a lot of time at the outset trying to figure out how to align incentives. That was the big, the big thought here. The big thought here. Well, two thoughts. One of which is there's so much energy and there's so much entrepreneurial problem-solving capability within these companies. So it's sort of a no-brainer to go out and figure out how to how to tap into that. And so then if you believe that, then how do you create the right incentive structures such that the foundation with its more strategic objectives to solve a particular problem could get aligned with the financial objectives of investors could get aligned with the you know the overall mission of these companies and so that's what we spent a lot of time doing was how do we how do we do that how do we create that right set of alignment it was a fantastic experience because we did figure that out and worked with just again some just fantastic companies you know one of the things i really loved was the degree to which the biotech industry was so supportive of us trying to do this and the amount of support that we got from some of the leading life science vcs to yeah we'll figure this out we'll figure it. and and you know when you figure it out it's you can figure it out in concept but you got to get down to like structuring the side letters and the agreements and the financial structures and the willingness of these these partners both at both companies as well as the investors to actually go with us on that journey and be patient with an organization that's sometimes a little challenging to work with and figure that out was actually uh, a real positive force and i think that that you know as we moved into biomatics you know, understanding the degree to which the, the biotech community in general is such a mission oriented, you know, we have to deliver returns and we will deliver returns. But the motivation of most of the people that that we work with was very much how are we going to solve problems in the world? And can we figure out a way that the power of innovation within the biotech industry is you know, definitely got to deliver returns for ventures, and you know, make make a lot of money for for the people when they when they deliver great outcomes for patients. But it's also, you know, within underserved populations, we want to figure out how to get, you know, get treatments to these people sooner and tap into that potential. So um, I, I love that. I love that about biotech that it's not just about making money; it's also about really solving problems in the world.
0: So you saw lots of. Uh Different little companies mm-hmm. come along and, of course, they would like money from the Gates Foundation. That's that's a nice little um, good housekeeping stamp of approval mm-hmm. uh, on there because they're smart people. They're going to check the, the science yeah. and make sure that it's reproduced and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And you're probably getting a lot of these companies who, you know, maybe they've got some platform that's based on hardcore immunology. Mm-hmm. And that could be applied toward cancer, typically seen as a first world Problem actually increasingly becoming a developed world Absolutely. issue too, but <laughs> also can be used for new vaccines, perhaps. <laughs> so it is this is where you were trying to find is there a way for you know company X to do both?
1: And there is a way for company X to do both. Um, I think there has to be. Again, it, it's all in the alignment. So you know the, the very basics of the structure that we developed were we we wanted to. We wanted to invest in these companies, and the reason we wanted to invest in these companies was again to, for it to be a partnership. It's not just a; it's not we're just giving you money to do a project. We want to be part of the success of building this technology. And then what we would do is we would actually say, okay, some of the work that we're asking you to do is part of what you would do to build your company as a platform technology. You know, whether it's going to be applied to cancer, whether it's going to be applied to infectious disease and some of it's not and let's be really honest about what of what of the what of what we're asking you to do is value creating and what we're asking you to do is something that will not necessarily make you lots of money and you can't ask a company to do that and so we we developed you know financial structures to map against that so we would do equity when we we knew that what we were partnering with was around, was value creating, and we would do grants when we were asking you to take that platform technology and specifically apply it to you know, mm-hmm. malaria or TB or, or some of these other diseases that, that didn't have a large commercial market.
0: So you're creating the structures for how to do this, mm-hmm. recruiting a team mm-hmm. to help you execute on this, yeah. reviewing lots of proposals from companies that yep. all want money. This is a pretty uh, pretty busy job. Yep. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. <laughs> and then you get to meet this guy, Boris, yep. who is uh, he's <laughs> a, s- a scientist by training, a Harvard guy. He's he's helping out Bill at his separate thing from the foundation. Yep. It's his, his personal investment vehicle, yep. BGC3. Yep. How did you two work together and get to know each other?
1: Boris was Bill's chief science and technology advisor. And Boris crossed a lot of the different activities that Bill was doing. So Boris worked within the foundation. He also worked on other things, some of Bill's direct investment activities, as well as you know, Microsoft, Microsoft Research. And so when I came into the foundation to set up this investment program, so it was it was partly biotech and global health, but it was across all the foundation's different areas. One of the really important things within a very science technology-heavy Field is that you need to have great scientists to partner with. You need to have people that really deeply understand the science. So, I'm not a scientist by training, I have a finance background. But, you know, one of the things that I know is that you don't go out and you don't make investments, especially in biotech, unless you deeply understand the science. And I had access, you know, whether it was a a biotech investment or whether it was an ag tech investment, I had access to great scientists within the foundation to go out and do some of that uh, deep vetting. But Boris, you know, Boris is a unique character in that he's kind of this incredibly curious polymath who, whether he knows it himself or whether he has the capability to go out and find the people to know it, and he has just great gut instincts on what's great science that can be translated into a good investment. So I really quickly, early in developing this program, found Boris, um, in part because Bill was my ultimate investment committee, so I, I think at the outset he didn't necessarily trust that we were going to make good investments, and so we wanted to review every investment. And you know, Boris, Boris was the person that was going to review it and give Bill advice, uh, and so that was how I initially found him because he needed to have Boris's perspective. But over time, as we built out the program, it really became a partnership around the biotech investments in that trusting his judgment on that that sort of science review in addition to all the other people that we had to get, but also his instincts for for what was really good. And so we worked together, you know, for years. Boris was also doing investments in in the health space outside of what the foundation was doing. And so it was sort of a reciprocal thing where he would he would look at what we were doing and and give us good guidance and advice. And then we would do the, we'd give him, you know, when he was looking at foundation medicine and uh, Schrodinger, and we developed a very close relationship looking at all the, this a range of investments and thinking about how to manage those effectively.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I first started noticing his name in, in Foundation Medicine, mm-hmm. uh, Schrodinger, yep. Editas, mm-hmm. and I look at it and think, oh, there, there's a pattern here. Well, Something's going on. <laughs> uh, these are investments that are outside of the Gates Foundation <laughs> wheelhouse, yep. but are still interesting mm-hmm. to Bill and maybe could be useful yeah. uh, for the foundation in a boomerang sort of way yeah. later yeah. Uh, for global health. Yeah. Okay, so how do you two hit upon this idea of, gee, let's leave and hang on our own shingle and start a new thing?
1: You know, I think both Boris and I are inherently very entrepreneurial people. You know, my favorite thing in the world, his favorite thing in the world, is to go out and find and help and support companies at an early stage. And we had a great experience within what we affectionately call the Gates universe doing that. And at a certain point, we felt like it was easier to do that outside of the Gates universe than inside the Gates universe. And there are a couple of things, one of which is there's sort of a perceived conflict of interest. Like Bill doesn't want to create the impression that he's making money off his philanthropy very validly. And I, I have absolutely no doubts that his, you know, having worked within that context for a long time, that it is incredibly philanthropically, he wants to solve problems in the world. But he also doesn't want to end up in the New York Times, like, you know, people have made money off of what he's doing. And so we had to be very careful with how we made investments. And we, you know, we we're seeing a lot of just extraordinary things. So, you know, right now, what's going on in science is just magical. Like it's amazing, the innovations that are taking place. And we wanted to be able to just move a little bit more nimbly than we were within the constraints of of that particular structure. So great experience, loved it, learned a huge amount. Our core investment thesis is very much built upon that mindset towards breakthrough science, towards solving problems that we built together within the Gates universe at a certain point, we felt like we could be a lot more effective and a lot more nimble and a lot more helpful in supporting some of the companies that we were excited about outside of that. And we wanted to do our own thing. We wanted to be entrepreneurial.
0: Well, and maybe you can, to use a, a rural euphemism, you can have your cake and eat it too. There's nothing wrong with making a successful investment for cancer nope. <laughs> or, nope. or immunology or vaccines or all of the above.
1: Yep. No, absolutely. And that's, again, getting back to what I said before, this is part of the reason why I love biotech is because that fundamentally what we're doing is we're solving problems in the world. We're creating, you know, great outcomes for patients and we're making money at the same time. And you can do both. Um, And that's what makes me excited.
0: Life Science Cares is an exciting new philanthropic outlet for biotech professionals. It's a collective effort of the life science industry to end poverty in the greater Boston area. Now working with more than 150 companies, Life Science Cares harnesses the industry's human and financial resources to support service organizations doing the best work in the areas of basic human survival, education, and economic sustainability. To learn more about how your organization can become a member or how you can volunteer, visit www.lifesciencecares.org. And do you want to get your name in front of the most innovative people in biotech? Sponsor the Long Run Podcast. Ping me at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. To actually do this, though, I mean, you got to take the plunge. You're you, as an entrepreneur, you take the risk. Yeah, uh, you got to go out there and hustle to find the LPs to, who who believe in you and Boris yep. and your thesis. Both of you together. What, what was your pitch like? I mean, that you're addressing something that maybe is is under invested at this point, or or no? Just
1: so our, you know, our pitch is consistent with what we believe, which is this is an unprecedented. Time in science. I mean, I'm a historian of science, so this is an unprecedented time in science. Our understanding of, you know, biology, the tools that we, you know, George Church, who's a founder of eGenesis, one of our companies, when he talks to young people, he says you should go into biotech, not tech, because the next two decades are this is the time by which we understand the human system and biology and are able to manipulate that to solve problems in a totally unprecedented way. And and I and I see that and I believe that. And I had we had the fortune to be sitting, you know, with some of the great entrepreneurs and great innovators within and and build a network with those people within that, that Gates experience. And so building on that, building on this view that we're at a point of, of of break you know extraordinary breakthroughs in science and technology, and we want to be there, and we want to, you know, translate and create companies around that. The other thing, you know, our core investment thesis is is around data. It's around our understanding of biology has been driven by the proliferation of both genomics and clinical and health data writ large and Therefore, our ability to understand biology, our ability to understand value-based care and and trade-offs between outcomes and cost is, is grounded in this proliferation of data. And so if you look at the things that we invest in, that's the consistent theme. The consistent theme is we understand this biology because we've got such a deeper understanding of the genetic basis of this disease the patient populations, our ability to go out and, and you know treat patients in a new way because we have such a deeper... I mean, I think about your body is a genetic code. It's data. And we are beginning, we're at the cusp of understanding the genetic code that is our bodies in a way that's, that's unprecedented. And what an exciting time to be investing.
0: Now, I would agree with everything you just said, but I would also add that are, we're in the early, early days oh, of this. And absolutely. that is, I, I think of it as a data generation and collection phase. Yeah. We can generate all this data. I mean, mm-hmm. you've seen the stat, whatever it is. We've generated 90% of all the data that's ever been generated in world <laughs> history in the last two years. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this and is, it's
1: all, I mean, so much data. It's incredible.
0: And so this rapidly outpaces mm-hmm. our ability yep. to make sense of it. That is the project mm-hmm. of science absolutely. for the next hundred years. Absolutely. <laughs> or more. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Knowing that, yep. what, what did you look for in your first batch of investments? Because these are really important. These are mm-hmm. the ones that are going to, you know, help define your firm in, in the eyes of the world.
1: Our first batch of investments, we looked for some real cutting edge breakthrough. This is where we hang out with our friends at Arch and GV, look for, you know, Grail's a uh, Grail's a classic example. It's a company that is generating a huge amount of data. They're trying to figure out what to do with that data. And if they do, they will you know, fundamentally change the way that we think about cancer. And cancer will go from being this late-stage, primarily late-stage treated disease where we're spending millions of dollars to keep people alive towards an understanding that cancer is fundamentally mutation in our system and understanding how our system is mutating over our lifespan and being able to diagnose that, being able to manage the mutation within our system as a, you know, that's part of our health. That's, that's the dream of, 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 of GRAIL and what GRAIL is capable of doing. And so that kind of, holy cow, that is a big bet.
0: Now for those unfamiliar, this is a company that spun out of Illumina and it's sequencing it's it's doing deep sequencing, looking for uh, trace amounts of tumor DNA right. in the blood.
1: Yeah, thank you for <laughs> explaining what Grail actually <laughs> is. Um, so that's that's a classic sort of breakthrough. We've also looked at you know, tools companies because we think that they're they're generating the new sources of data, the new, sort of the next generation of tools that will underpin the innovation. So we did, you know, we did an investment in Omnion, which is a low-cost gene sequencing company. We invested in Verana, which is, it's a little bit on the clinical workflow, but what they're doing is they're integrating The EHR data. I mean, one of the big problems with data right now is it's to your point that's going to take us 100 years to figure this out. The data is fragmented. It's all siloed. All the clinical data is within EHR systems or within imaging systems, and so the problem of aggregating data, getting to differentiated data at scale, we are far away from that. And we really we we watched Flatiron. We thought that that was such an interesting model. We actually had the opportunity to invest in Flatiron, but couldn't for a number of different
0: Issues. That's a very refreshing show of humility, by the way, Julie. As a VC, to admit that you know here's one we, we passed on uh-huh. and we missed. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, <laughs> it I, happens I, all the time. I'm, I'm actually keeping a list. I'm keeping the ones that I passed on <laughs> to to see the returns on them because I want to see the pattern recognition on the things I passed on. That's could've, one of what's one of my that's one of my spreadsheets. Being a finance person, I'm tracking my anti portfolio to <laughs> see to see what I missed.
0: Home runs that you could have hit exactly, yep. exactly.
1: And we all do. I mean, that's part of the business.
0: But, but not only is this data problem correct that it's siloed, fragmented, we don't know how to connect A to B to C, mm-hmm. the genome all the way through mm-hmm. the phenotypes, <laughs> the business models of just about everybody are in opposition mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. will try to resist mm-hmm. at almost every step of the way yeah. efforts to really intelligently curate and put all the pieces together.
1: I mean, again, it's private data versus aggregated data. And aggregated scale data is how you get to uh, a deep understanding of what the data means. And so that's one of the challenges. Again, you look at the EHRs. The EHRs are holding on to their data. If I look at the digital health space, which we have increasingly focused on clinical workflow as the as the piece of the market where we think we can get near-term change, but the biggest challenge is the data is deeply fragmented, and so trying to do anything with that data in a meaningful way is really hard, which is why f- we thought Flatiron did a great job, because they actually went out and you know, bought an EHR and then built on that data. And then Verana, which is one of our portfolio companies, is solving that problem by partnering with some of the specialty registries who have managed to aggregate the data.
0: Ophthalmology, specifically. So
1: ophthalmology is first, but the conception here is they'll move into other specialty registries as well.
0: Just real quick, I mean, what was special about Verana that gave you some confidence that they, they could have a bite of the apple here?
1: It started in ophthalmology. So it was um, a group of people, including Mark Blumenkrantz and Steve Schwartz, who are ophthalmologists. It was Brooke Byers, who's always a, a deep pleasure to work with. And it was started originally as sort of more of a digital diagnostics for ophthalmology. When it really became clear that there was something real powerful there was when we we did manage to do that partnership with the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And that gave us 90% of the clinical data for all the specialty ophthalmologists, working with David Park, who is the president of, or the CEO of AO, who's also a visionary. I mean, it's visionaries. That's what gave me the confidence. It's visionaries. Uh And this alignment of people. And then we brought in uh, Krishna at uh, Google Ventures, who I also love to work with, who was involved in Flatiron Krishna Yeshwan,
0: a Krishna future, future guest on this. Yeah, show. good Krishna.
1: Krishna is fantastic, and actually, you know, I brought my 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 gates alignment because it's a non you know AO is a nonprofit. I brought a lot of that experience to bear on figuring out how to do that and align between the providers and the and the association with you know. Customers for this data, which are pharma companies. And we basically said okay, how can we take this data source, which is solving the problem of EHR fragmentation? this, you know, this incredible resources, which is 90% of the clinical data within ophthalmology. Something like 50 million patient records, that's right, that's all right. put together, mm-hmm.
0: reasonably aligned, that's structured, right. yeah. talks to each other, mm-hmm. and just needs like some smart software people to that's go right. in there and, and crunch it and, and, and way, derive that, meaning. from by the way,
1: that it. was David Park who had that vision to do that. Like, again, visionary, and I love working with visionaries like like David. And then we said, okay, we need to you know, how do we take that data source and how do we create support tools for the for the ophthalmologists to help them do their help them treat patients better? How do we mine this data to help them one meet all the regulatory the new regulatory reporting on their quality measures that's like step 1 but the vision here is we're going to create deci- decision support tools we're going to create tools for the providers to help them treat their patients better
0: okay so hopefully there's something in it for them and it's not yeah, just like oh, a big, no, a, big givea- a big giveaway oh, no, has, to you know providers venture capital back company it has to be. It has, company. to be it
1: has to be i mean again this is where you can do good and you you can make money you ha- you know this is a precious resource this integrated data and we're going to help providers do their do their work better we're going to help do scientific research for the American Academy of Ophthalmology and then we're also going to mine that data for insights for pharma we're going to mine that data to go help recruit patients for clinical trials you know we're going to do a whole bunch of really great things for the for the pharma industry that's a that's a platform that's a data platform on which we can Develop better therapeutics and do better clinical trials.
0: Now, you got a few different things going on here in your portfolio with these digital health companies and therapeutics. I think you raised something like, was it 200 million in your first fund? That's right. So, that is a pretty good size for a new fund. Mm -hmm. Like, I think if you look at like Third Rock Ventures or Arch Ventures, they probably were even smaller than that when they first started you know way back when mm-hmm. but it's a good size yeah. for putting a meaningful amount of work at a small company but not too much money not funny money yeah. that that you know will go to waste yeah. companies don't need they they need focus and discipline at this stage of gestation yeah. N- now you've raised more 300 million mm-hmm. is there something special about that number like is there a goldilocks effect here
1: no and i and i think we we are very conscious of wanting to resist you know what happens with firms is you just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And and we don't want to do that. The reason we went for a $300 million fund was very much based on the dynamics of the market right now, which is there's a move towards larger series A's. And I think, again, being disciplined about those series A's is really important, but that's just the reality of which we're operating in. And so wanting to put, you know, a good meaningful amount of money to work in those series A's and have reserves to support our companies through, multiple rounds in uh, assuming that you know that it's, that everything's not going to be able to IPO on pre-IND, which I'm making this. As a finance professional, I don't believe our markets are going to always be yeah, completely open to IPO. And so we want to make sure that we support our companies very effectively through the, through the inevitable ups and downs of the market.
0: If one of your uh, key assumptions was that the market would remain open forever for preclinical therapeutics companies, I would, <laughs> I would <laughs> exactly. be concerned for you, Julie. <laughs>
1: no, no, I'm. Uh, I, I, Boris and I are good. Good balance. I'm the finance skeptic. He's the, he's the enthusiast.
0: So you get some more money to work. I mean, you've got you know, a few IPOs in here. Denali Therapeutics went public. It's got a decent valuation. Uh, just recently, Twist Bioscience, the DNA synthesis company. So there's a you know, different financial model than Therapeutics. Yep. I mean, that generates real revenue. Yep. Lots of customers. That's always
1: nice when you have real revenue. What,
0: what a concept, <laughs> right? A nice way to balance your portfolio out. we got some digital health that's a little less capital intensive. So you plan to keep this basic thesis intact here for Fund 2?
1: Yep. Yeah, I think that our idea with Fund 2 is, you know, I think when, if you talk to us, which you did, Luke, when we did Fund 1, it was sort of 50% digital health, 50% therapeutics and diagnostics. I think we've gotten more nuanced in terms of that core, you know, data's going to change healthcare. And through the experience of looking for investments in Fund 1, I think we see three areas right now which we think we can get good near-term returns those sort of breakthrough therapies and diagnostics. And, you know, we're pretty active in the gene editing space. You know, obviously what's going on in sort of cell and gene therapies is really exciting. I still think that's really nascent, but but very exciting. And then we did a couple of investments in, in neuro. We just brought in Mike Poole, who we both Boris and I worked with at the foundation, who's an old drug development hand in neuro who has the appropriate level of skepticism about how hard it is to actually do something effective within neuro, but also the optimism of, wow, we're at a great point in science and we think it's a turning point. So one of our hypotheses here is that in the way that we've seen the link between the genetic basis of of cancer and all of the, the great innovation that's taken place over the last couple decades in cancer we're going to be able to do something similar within within neuro it's much more complicated because we have the genetic basis of disease for neuro is is much more complicated you know you don't have those as direct or as clear a connection between the the genetic mutations and the disease but there is a genetic basis combining it with an understanding of neural circuitry combining it with an understanding of patient populations you know we are investors in blackthorn and if you look at neurobehavioral psychiatric disorders. Right now, I feel like we're where we were with cancer, you know, 20 years ago, which is breast cancer, and it's not breast cancer now. It's a bunch of different mutational characteristics. When we say schizophrenia, there's a bunch of different characteristics underneath that which, which could be treated in a much better way. So driving towards much more nuanced view of these diseases around patient populations, around biomarkers in a very, you know, not just you know, integrating multiple different of data sources to understand how to understand these diseases.
0: You said near-term returns in there, but also, I mean, that this is still pretty early in this, in terms of the science. Is this something you worry about? Like, you know, b- being too early. In venture yes. capital, it's that fine art. You don't oh, want to be too early. Yeah. You don't want to be too late either.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is the mark of genius, which I'm not positing that is to be able to manage contradictory things in your mind at the same time, to hold hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time. And I feel like that's what, you know, that's one of the, one of the things you have to do with venture, which is you have to be, you have to be bold about science. Otherwise you'll just get terrified at the risk, but you also have to be skeptical and you know, think really clearly about the risks that you're taking and look at them really hard and say, okay, is that, do I understand that? And can I mitigate that? And is it too early? So it's this combination of boldness and skepticism and holding those two, you know, it's the combination of the finance professional with the scientist. It's holding a bunch of different thoughts in your mind at the same time and then navigating your way through it. So, you know, if you look at neuro, we're not, we're not going to go out and do all, every single neuro company, we're going to go look at the places where we think that the biology is proven. We think that the team has the ability to navigate the complexity. We think that there's a unique ability to, to use these multiple different complex data sources to do discovery or development in a more effective way.
0: Now, people are also the, the other main X factor here. You're bringing in a couple of uh, new people, yep. expanding your team with venture partners, Mike Poole, who you mentioned, and then Eric Anderson in mm-hmm. Boston. He's a prolific uh, serial entrepreneur yep. and, and investor. Yep. How will that you know, change the, the sparks around here, the diversity of thought around the table?
1: It always changes. It Boris and I are talking the phone eighteen times a day and are totally. We're not simpatico at all. We have very different perspectives, and so bringing those perspectives together. But we trust each other, and that's part of what makes this particular partnership work really well. And when you add people to that, you know, I've been on the other side of because we did some investments in funds within within Gates, and you know, when you invest in a fund, you're investing in the decision-making capability of the partners. That's what you buy. And both Boris and I feel really comfortable. We've worked together for a decade. We have a very complementary perspective. We bring very different perspectives to any of the decision-making. And that's what's part of what makes has made our first fund work. Not possible to continue to grow without bringing new people, and so it's going to change the dynamic. I believe that the best decisions are made when Different perspectives are brought to bear, that people, people look at things from different perspectives, they argue, they they you know, there's there's conflict, there's creative conflict, and then they trust each other to make the right decision at the end of the day. So it's a combination of of conflict and trust is how you get to good investment decisions, and, and that's how we'll build we'll build a culture of of creative conflict but then fundamentally trusting each other as partners and that's part of what we need to do over the next couple of years and and not uh, paralysis by
0: analysis. Oh no, you can't. And not stalemating. You oh, can't. You compromise.
1: <laughs> it's not even compromise. No. It's that you know, it's not compromise because the problem the problem if you if you start compromising then you start going down to the mediocre. You have to still be bold. You have to still take risk. It's Bringing in multiple different perspectives, looking at reality, the reality of the risk that we're taking, the reality of the challenges of everything that we're doing, looking at that reality coldly and analytically, and then making that jump into belief and trusting that jump into belief is, is, is where I've been successful in investment decision making. So, and, and that's that's how we do it, that's how Boris and I do it, and that's the culture that we'll create as we build this firm long term.
0: How do you evaluate people <laughs> for uh, uh, entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the team? Mm-hmm. H- how do you look at them and, and get to a place where you're, you're confident enough to, to write a check?
1: So, uh, you know, I'm a people person, Luke, so it's all the people. So, you know, and I think about So if I think about how we think about investment decisions, we're hard on science. Like, we won't do it. We won't even look unless we have a deep belief that the science is sound and that's where Boris's particular genius comes to play, which is the ability to go in and ruthlessly look at the science and say, is this real? Because if you if you don't do that, then you're compounding the complexity of people with science. I don't want to take okay, science so the, risk. This so is
0: step one of due step diligence. Step one of
1: diligence is if you can't get over the science bar, we're not even going to look. And then it's all people. Then it's all people. And... People are messy, and they're wonderful, and these, these scientist entrepreneurs are extraordinary. I'm, I'm grateful every day to get to go hang out with them and work with them. They're extraordinary people, and they're complicated people. And so how do you judge people? You judge people by their their passion and their conviction and their drive and their self-awareness, their willingness to grow and change, like those are the, you know, it sounds incredibly cliched, but that's the reality of it. And then what you also do is you look at strengths and weaknesses of people. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. I'm, I think sometimes people are afraid of judgment. I'm not a judgmental person. I look at people and I look at what they could become, what they could grow to become. And then you think about what are the people that you put around them to help them become this potentiality. And that's how I look at people. I look at what is their, what is their potential? And then how do we as supporters of them put the infrastructure around them in terms of great people? So I, you know, my cliche right now is how do I wrap great people around great science? Because that's the magic.
0: So you don't just look at a resume. This can't just be easily rendered in data terms. Like, oh, this entrepreneur went to Harvard and he or she got a lot of A's. (laughs) They must be pretty good. A lot of people would like to think that we can just, like, put people into the magic data blender and, you know, (laughs) out comes the ideal candidate Mm -hmm. via software. Mm -hmm. But that's not where we derive meaning or understanding of what makes people tick
1: and it's not just the individual i mean you can have brilliant people it's the teams are magic like it's the it's the passion of the founder entrepreneur scientist with the people that believe in that and come around that and every day you know fight for getting stuff done to make this great vision and, and, and mission happen. And again, I'm, I'm grateful to be part, you know, to be a small part of making that happen.
0: Do you try to consciously sit down with whole teams like in a, I don't know, a relaxed environment, like a restaurant or something, where you can get a little more sense of how the,
1: they interact so I I, you know, Bob Kocher gave me advice early on when we were doing this, because I'm a I'm a very much a, a team people person. And so when we were starting out biomatics, I was sort of like, you know, my inclination is to go spend time with these teams, work with these teams, but I also don't want to micromanage. Like the worst thing a, a venture person or a board member can do is try to micromanage their companies. And so I was trying to figure out the balance between you know going in asking questions and i feel like farzad the ceo of Alidaid was probably the victim of my trying to figure this out in, in the in the right mix which is i want to i want to understand i want to you know i want to see the people at work i want to be part of those teams and i also don't want to micromanage because fundamentally they're the ones on the front lines every single part of the day and so i've i think i've gotten to a good balance with that which is i do go you know i go out into the field i go you know, hang out, I go, you know, sit in the eGenesis office. I am the interim CEO of eGenesis, so that's easier to do with eGenesis, but I like to go spend time with my companies. And I'm also very conscious of not wanting to be in their way. I can see that
0: with existing portfolio companies. Mm. You, you, sort of it's a little bit like the Heisenberg principle. Like you gotta be aware of like people behaving a little differently in your presence and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I'll just say as a reporter, one of the little clues or tricks that I have is when I'm sitting down and meeting with a team, mm. Does the CEO do all the talking and, <laughs> oh and, goodness, and domineer the room? Absolutely. Are are these other people kind of like afraid yeah. to, to talk, even when it's about the thing they know better absolutely. than the CEO? Kind of a red flag. Yeah. The flip side is also can be a positive sign. Does does the CEO graciously deflect questions to the <laughs> expert sitting to his or her right? It can reveal a lot.
1: Oh, I I mean one of the benefits of my adventurous career is seeing so many people in so many different cultures and so many different settings. And so one of the things that I, you know, the pattern recognition of how people treat each other and body language and how people treat assistants, how people treat women, how people, like just the small things of how people treat each other speak volumes. And, you know, again, you get, I I remember when I was at L.E.K., in the mid '90s, they used to send out photocopies of Harvard Business Review, and I'm, you know, a smart, you know, way too smart for my own good. I'm like, oh, Harvard Business Review, you know, they talk about leadership and they talk about culture and they talk about people. Like that's all crap. Like give me the data. And I feel like I'm like a, I'm, I feel like I'm a walking cliche now, which is <laughs> all that matters is people and leadership and culture and you know that's that's the thing that translates great. Science into real I mean, that's, that's what matters
0: Julie Sunderland thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Pleasure Thanks for listening to The Long Run a production of Timberman Report Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor music comes from D.A. Wallach and thanks for listening If you're interested in sponsoring the show and getting your name in front of biotech thought leaders, send me an email at luke.timberman at protonmail.com. See you next episode.